What I Believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Janet is a presenter, actress and writer, uh, well known to many of us for presenting the children's television programmes Blue Peter and Jigsaw in the early 80s. And as well as presenting, she is a successful novelist, her first two works being The Butcher's Hook and How It Was. And I'm delighted to say she's also a patron of Humanist UK. You've had a very varied working life, acting, presenting, uh, most recently writing. I suppose what ties that together is... Uh, creativity. Would you say that creativity was something that was important in your approach to life? Yes, and a way of exploring other lives. I think that's the other uh, linking thread, really, that obviously as an, an actress, that's what you're doing. You're finding out what it feels like to be someone else, to move like them, possibly to have a different voice, to definitely have had different lived experiences. And in writing, I can explore that even more because I'm not limited by physicality, which is something actually that didn't occur to me initially because I've only written two books. But the first one, the protagonist is a 19 year old girl and she's pretty determined and has a very idiosyncratic uh, approach to her moral compass, which is definitely skewed. And it wasn't till I was published and somebody was talking to me about her and said, it's amazing, you know, you've written this whole book about being a teenage girl, looking at me pointedly as I'm always <laughs> thinking, well, first of all, I was. And also, I hadn't thought anything other than what a great creative freedom and to be able to just think I want to be someone else without being constrained by, first of all, how I felt and most of all, by how the people see you, because naturally they define you by what they see. So it was a massive improvisation on the page, really. And what was it that was particularly enjoyable about it for you? Was it entering into another world or being another person? Just that fantasy element? Yes, and the fact that it was a different mindset. Because obviously, whatever you write, you write, you're hostage to fortune that people think it's you or a part of you or an element of you. And actually, it truly isn't. You know, it's quite an extreme version of the world as well because she gets up to no good. I mean, yeah. She falls in love with someone, I have done that. So we have things in common. But the way she deals with how she wants to be with her intended is not not my path, luckily, for everyone I live with. There's no <laughs> murder involved. But I think it's more that, that, uh, that ability to tantalise myself, too, with what-ifs, and probably more so in the second book, which is, again, about a woman, not a very nice woman behaving badly, but is, is also about somebody whose path in life does not go along where everyone expected and probably right. where she didn't either and she ends up doing things that are not great and hurting people and it is right. it's fascinating to step into what you might think of as a parallel path I mean it is not in any way how I think but obviously it's something I must have explored internally because you don't imagine that stuff out of nothing yeah, well, that's what struck me in, in that novel, actually, more than anything. It was almost like an overarching theme of the role of chance in shaping the possibilities in your life. Yeah. Is that, that, that does sound to me as if that's a, 
yes. a force you believe in in, yes. in in our lives. Well, it's that Bertrand Russell quote, isn't it, about history being spots and jumps? You know, I think I think it is that. You That's know, right. we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen next, and and often, even if you did go back and think, if I was standing at that particular crossroads, would I make that decision again? And often, if I'm honest, I would, even knowing what happened. Because yeah. there's something in the way that it happened that opens up other avenues for you, that changes your thinking or your relationships. And most profoundly, I suppose, because at the root of, of everything I think about are, are the, the twin aspects of, first of all, love and kindness, and also humour, because I can't imagine a world without that. I mean, that would just be... What's massive. the value of it? What do you value in humour? I think it's it's the fact that it, it reflects and it, it also, it doesn't dilute so much as make possible. You know, it's, it's a way of analysing things without having to commit. You know, it releases, in other words, rather than confines. Mm. My favourite people always make me laugh. And I think it is because even if they're making me laugh about something that might be deemed in another context deeply inappropriate, and after all, most of our conversations are not recorded... <laughs> Or it's something that, that I've been analysing or worried about or even snobby about sometimes. Right. And then you, you laugh about it and it connects you. So I find that enormously freeing, enormously freeing. And I can't imagine either enjoying life with somebody who didn't feel like that or cleaving unto writing that didn't have that effect. Too. That's a bit like your own writing, actually, at least when I was reading novels. There's, there's, there are lots of moments in it where, a bit like with, with a good bit of humour or observation, there's a twist and you I see something so. slightly yes. differently as a, I do as a result. So. Yes, I do hope so. You yes. believe, obviously, in self-reflection. Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah, I think we're all, um, certainly I am a work in progress. And I can't imagine ever thinking, right, job done, Janet, complete, you know, turn your attention to somebody else. Because That's a very humanist idea, isn't it? The idea that we're creating all the time ourselves. All the time. All the time. And, and I think what, what first made me identify as humanist was the importance of the present, the importance of that connection, the importance on these actions now matter. You know, the idea that... Um, you would be punished or rewarded much too late for you to ever <laughs> reap the benefits or even <laughs> feel the fear. I couldn't ever, for a long time, I couldn't articulate it. And I think there's all sorts of reasons for that. You know, I think with a lot of my generation, it's a hangover from a very, whatever it is, that what is that word? It's, it's something completely um, unillustrated about a Christian upbringing, which is nothing to do with real Christian tenets, except right. that, you know, my parents were not churchgoers, except at the, the high days and holidays. But I went to Sunday school at one point when I was little. And obviously in the education system that I had, all the common yeah. assemblies were linked by that, which isn't to say I still don't enormously enjoy singing hymns. I really, really do. <laughs> but there was a sort of, for a long time, a questioning about what I was feeling, which was loosely in other people's definition, spirituality, and me knowing it was definitely about people. It was mm. definitely about people, their achievements, their thoughts, their values, and that overarching sensation of we are all we have for each other which I found, you know, when I realised what it was, when I could really put a name to it, it was, a, it was such a relief. I think a lot of specifically storytellers have that interest 
I mean, I've always thought of the novel as almost inescapably a humanist medium. Yes. You know, there have been lots of great humanist novelists, whether it's George Eliot or Ian Forster or John Fowles or whatever. But I think that all novelists, to some extent, have got a bit of humanist in absolutely, them. Got to absolutely. Be in- no, I, can, I can cleave under, I don't know, let's say Doris Lessing or Anne Rice or Arthur Miller. I mean, Arthur Miller, I think, is a profound humanist. Yes. But that's, you know, like all the best people and all the best humanists, there is not, this is not a stick to beat anyone with. No, exactly. It's simply uh, an extension, you know, so it does come back to those connections again. If we think of our lives as stories, I'm asking this because it actually came up in another one of these uh, interviews with someone else. Um, it was a, 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 a humanist who should remain nameless for, for, for the moment, um, who was very afraid of death. Um, but he was like you're a storyteller and I said don't you doesn't death at least give a sort of structure to our lives can't you see it as being as a storyteller you can sort of accept it and think that it's instrumental his, his own death his, his, uh, well I think in general any death his own but yes more his own right yeah it's well, interesting isn't it I yes I mean I can see there is a plot but on the other hand yeah. sometimes I think I kind of wouldn't have written that bit <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have given that bit to myself. Because human that, life isn't a story, is it really? I mean, although it's uh, although it's true that we're we're self-creating, and I and I can yeah, see. Yeah, I I just think sometimes. Well. In fact, when when um, my husband was first diagnosed with cancer, one of our really close friends, and obviously a lot of my friends are actors or writers, and he rang me up and he went, "Oh my god, that's such bad casting! I wouldn't have given John that." <laughs> and I thought that's that's sort of it, really. You know that. Yes, yes, it is a story and we definitely know how it ends. But we are, we're still turning the pages all the time to find out what happens next. Because, because equally, and this will probably be an interesting conversation with the person who does fear death, but things, things happen to you, certainly have happened to me in my life, that if I've been told about them any number of years before, even months before, this will happen, I would have thought, I can't cope with that. That's, you know, that's too much. I can't cope with that. You know, not, not having to be specific, but just things that I would have thought would have been the catalyst for some sort of breakdown, for some sort of innovation, for definitely a feeling that this is not, I cannot be me in this situation. But actually, you kind of do. And that's the impressive thing about the way we're, look at the thing we're living through now. You know, right. we've been told about this. In fact, even when we were sort of hinted, you know, when we watched it happening in, in China and Italy, most of us said, but not here, not us. And then it was. So it's, it's, yes, it is a story, but in a lot of ways, it's almost not ours to tell. And the only thing we do know is the beginning and the end. And sometimes you can't even be quite sure about the beginning. <laughs> That's true. Um, can I dwell a little bit on that, the, the point that you've just made about our, when we look back, we realise we've coped with more than we uh, thought we could have cope with what do you take any particular lessons from that observation apart from the fact that we're more resilient than we are I mean is there a value in looking back is that also part of what you're saying I I personally have to make it a value I do but I I think one of the things I've learned and my friends would probably raise an eyebrow at this is that much as I would like to I can't structure this for anyone else Mm. and so I can only I can only give myself my own example well, I'll give you a very personal example. At one stage, I had uh, a series of miscarriages. I wanted a fourth child. I think we wanted a fourth child. And it didn't happen. And I had a lot of miscarriages. And 
if I'd been told that before because I'd had children you know easily and I just thought yeah another one would be nice and, and even after the first couple of miscarriages well there's there's my miscarriages um but when it went on and I was being in some way tested by myself in this reaction I was I was really not proud that's wrong but I was surprised and grew with the fact that I could cope I could cope. I mean, there's n nothing, I wouldn't say I was proud of it because it wasn't set up for me like that. But I definitely was sort of, I don't know, something in my marrow that I'd excavated that I thought, oh, that was there all along and I didn't know. And although probably given the choice, I might not have tested it like that. No. There's, I'm not someone who revisits anyway. That's not my nature. I don't go back to places I've left unless I sort of have to and I don't go back over things and 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 I don't regret things you know I try not to live like that because for me personally that's not the recipe for any sort of present moment fulfillment but I do draw on the fact that I am able to be stronger than I thought I was. And those moments of self-realization sort of growing self-knowledge I suppose that they're not just a uh, a, a solace for the present they are something about the future as well they are absolutely i think i think you know we are this collection of the cells that know us and although you know we slough some and grow others we are finding all the time i suppose a kind of core and we hope it's resilient and if it isn't resilient and actually i'm always saying to people and i really think this i think strength is an overrated virtue I think there's nothing wrong with saying, I can't, I really can't cope with this and turning to whoever, whatever it takes to get through. But I suppose resilience and strength are not quite the same. You know, resilience is being able to get up again and strength is probably standing there while the rushy brook hurls around you. And the point is not to get into it. <laughs> you don't, yeah. you don't yeah. have to be there. And you certainly don't have to just survive. You don't have to just survive. But I suppose... For me, you know, and I, I do think this is really personal. And like I say, it will Im impress anyone who, because I'm fond of giving advice, that's why I say that. And I, and I like that role in my friend's life. But it is only advice. And it cannot be tenets of this is how it should be. But yeah, th there is something about that, that knowledge, that gathering of yourself every day, that regathering too, which is so highlighted at the moment, that sets you up for the day to come. You, you 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 like to give advice did you say yeah very do you do you see that uh as a um a duty or as and i i would always wait to be asked right always always but but it has been i suppose friendships form those sort of roles don't they and and i you know i go to my friends for similar things but but i suppose yeah that has been a way that I've learned that talking about my problems has been enormously helpful for me in mostly reducing them, actually. You know, a problem shared is not so much a problem halved as a problem sort of put in perspective and shrunk a little so that you can pocket it and have a look at it later so that it isn't overwhelming. Right. But yeah, I quite enjoy that. I quite enjoy discussing things with people. Well, I read in one of the interviews in a newspaper with you that you, you somewhere where you said that you thought that a lot of people, all of us, were, were sometimes a bit too hard on ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And needed someone to yeah. uh, make that point to us occasionally. Yes, exactly. And, and that's why I particularly feel that, you know, my advice to somebody is not ever 
be strong. You know, I, I just think sometimes you have to feel which way the wind is blowing and let it happen because otherwise you're failing. You're setting yourself up to fail. And that, again, is something I'm not terribly in favour of. Mm. There's a lot of this actually these days, isn't there, about, especially around growing public interest and, and talk about mental health, about the um, the extent to which perhaps in the past it's been encouraged to be strong, be yeah. a man, even if you're talking about the gendered uh, sense of this, um, as if that's the way uh, yeah. that that's what courage is. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's not necessarily, is it? And even now with a growing acceptance of the fact that we're all very complicated in our mental health all of us i think we have elements of things that do test us and that do need additional help or a different way of thinking but yeah i i don't want to get to the place where you just think right i've sorted this and i know where we are with this but having said that i think there's now a danger that we think that people saying you know i have struggled or i am struggling that then means they can be sorted and they not mm. necessarily not now you know, and they, they will have to work on it themselves too. But the, the admission, in other words, is not the same as the cure. And the cure is, it's only the first step. But I think now that we've all made ourselves a bit proud of the fact that we accept, you know, people in the public eye having uh, what they would deem as, you know, episodes of mental health failing. Yes. And we would say, yeah, but, you know, aren't you fine now? You know, you said it, which is great. It's well done. done. <laughs> you know, and I think we're we're much more mutable than that i think we're we're endlessly complicated on a daily moment to moment basis you know we make weird decisions in our heads weird decisions all the time and and complicated assignments and promises and negotiations which are all part of who we are but if they're ever tested by something yeah i think i think you need to admit that one part of the machine doesn't work very well. Probably. That's actually quite an interesting thing to think about a bit more because obviously you've said and it's clear that you believe really in the sense that you really you believe that it happens and also you're very committed to self-creation and self-development but also um, believe that there are strong limiting factors on that in our lives like chance and the possibilities um, and that you seem there to be suggesting that there you think there are other limiting factors on ourselves as well I wonder what they would be what what is it that you think uh, is, is being shaped by? Keep among them is guilt. I think I think guilt is a huge factor, huge factor, and I think it's very difficult to escape, because from from the tiniest thing about whether you should be doing one thing when you're doing another, to whether you're enjoying something and in spite of something, to whether you are, I don't know, not living wrongly exactly, but but doing something which actually you you know at the time will not add up to the best possible outcome. Right. So at the same time as a, a possible passing pleasure, you know, you're handed that package and then in the other hand they say, and here's the guilt that goes with it. <laughs> and is that what you think guilt is? That's that feeling that you're doing something which you will have yes. a bad consequence. So. Yeah, or, or just um, a kind of wrongness. And I think, you know, in, in my friend circle it's interesting the people who feel guilty about the tiniest things and let's uh. really small you know the extra slice of cake you know that that they have a, a massive problem and yet they probably still eat it but <laughs> they have come to some weird arrangement with themselves whereby they will live in this world of delicious cake and are never ever present in the moment of just thinking i love this you know they're already taking on the guilt of the action and, and action and complication, I think, is another massive driver because it makes us 
fearful. You know, what are the consequences of me doing this, not doing this? And in the best possible world, of course, we live democratically and we look outwards as well to see what other value judgments people are making and can make a, a group assessment, which is actually very valuable. But yeah, I think, I think guilt is a huge driver. And you're against and guilt, it sounds like. Yeah, and I think generally, for most people, their actions are driven by smashing of guilt and quite a lot of fear and jealousy. Jealousy is a driver as well. Jealousy, I think. Quite so. The negative, the negative. It's the negative aspects of our of our feelings that are oh, the yeah, break, think, breaks on our self creation. Talk a lot yeah. about the positives. Yeah. Oh no, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think I think we're mostly good. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so if well, this again is is quite a humanist proposition, isn't it? The idea that we're we're, we're fundamentally uh, creatures such that if the social conditions are correct, we will be yes. good, cooperative, generous, yes. kind. Yes. And it's, but I suppose it's 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 the vision of of the group, but knowing its individuals that make it, and that their motives, even in the group, are not necessarily going to be pure. Mm. But that's quite exciting because that's that's all different energies, you know. And if you want to analyze it and drill down and have a group share, you probably would find that people are acting in the same way for entirely different reasons. But I think that's part of the exhilaration of us all being very different and having different abilities and decision-making and abilities to be, really. You had a very strong influence, uh, I expect, um, on uh, a generation of young people in Britain through specifically the programmes that you presented that they were very much a central part of their lives. Were you ever conscious of imparting certain values or attitudes in that, in that role? Well, luckily, not in the way that made me put on a kind of different mantle, if you like. Right. right. I mean, being a presenter, I think, is just giving an edited highlights version of yourself. You know, given that the majority of my presenting career was spent in children's programmes, and I was, at the time, an actual adult. So my life outside the programme was as complicated, fantastic, etc., as any other adult's life. But of course, that's not what you're bringing to the screen. You are not, you know, you are not. In, in the role, particularly on Lupita, you are the role of a, a cheerful and sort of, not wary exactly, but very inquisitive um, big sister. You know, you're, you're the safe place because you may get it wrong, but if you do, you will be, you know, again, resilient in the face of that. But you will learn from it. You know, you're not supposed to be the expert. You're definitely having a go on behalf of people who can't. When I joined the programme, it was made pretty clear to me that, and this is luckily before paparazzi and Twitter and stuff, um, that, you know, to a certain extent, I would be public property and that therefore I had responsibility, you know. And But I already... For I already had a child. <laughs> Sophie was yeah. four when I joined the programme. So oh, right. Yeah. Of that, you know, exactly. I mean, that, you know, in, in my Blue Peter role, as it were, I was not a mother, but that's okay because, you know, I didn't, I didn't need that definition of myself on screen. But I already, I already knew a bit about that. And having said that, I was also a very young mother. So I think, you know, we were learning together and it, we used to get Sophie's take on that. But I don't <laughs> think I was... And I think it's probably a good thing that I was conscious of a kind of role as, you know, look up to me, you know, we're all models here, partly because I was working with other people who were just as 
funny and flawed as me but also because luckily the program didn't make us feel like that you know right. the program was quite clear it was it was a very clear role to play and bearing in mind by the time i joined the program it had already been on air for 25 years mm. so it was pretty set and it has clear values you know there are obviously values in it curiosity adventure you know commitment those absolutely and enthusiasm and that's another you know if we get onto the positive stuff enthusiasm, yes yeah love enthusiasts and and i always used to think when i was presenting that if i met someone who had an enthusiasm that i didn't necessarily share you know let's say and this never happened but let's say it was, you know making the leaning tower of pizza out of matchsticks or something <laughs> what i could share was their enthusiasm for it which is always uh, the most delightful thing you know somebody who just wants to talk about something they love is always going to be good value but it yeah it wasn't luckily it, we didn't i mean we didn't get any training at all anyway but we certainly <laughs> think you know don't you know don't forget you have a huge responsibility but like I say, the lucky thing was that it was before paparazzi and Twitter and yeah. a massive, very different interest in people's outside lives. Otherwise, I suppose people in those roles are followed about now. I mean, I don't know, but I don't keep up with those things. But I, I imagine think, they are. I think it's probably peaked now. I think right. it's been overtaken a little by reality TV. But there was certainly a time, and I'm probably thinking in the 90s, you know, around the time of particularly the sort of Ladette culture, you know, mm. where presenters particularly lady presenters were just fodder for what are they doing who are they with what are they thinking and you know we didn't thank goodness we didn't have that thank goodness you know there was enough going on so it wasn't as if um we weren't aware of how popular the program is far from it and of course in in sheer viewing terms of course we had an amazing reach because there was kind of only us and them right where are they now right <laughs> <laughs> Um, you mentioned something just now that you haven't mentioned so far, but there is a strong theme um, in uh, in both your books anyway, um, which is uh, particularly issues as they affect or life as it affects women, women and girls. Um, is that something that's important to you? Yes, very. Yes, very. Yeah. Has that run through all your work and life? Yes, it has. And I think um, initially, I think because I'd chosen a career that that didn't have that sort of structure. You know, that I had to worry about uh, that sort of career ladder where it might be that I would reach a point where I could see only men in charge. And of course, having said that, of course, if you track it back to every job I ever had, at the end of the chain of command, there would always be a bloke. Right. But that, that was slowly changing. And it's certainly, you know, because I didn't really encounter, you know, massively oppressive me too sort of things. What I was aware of is the fact that I... I knew that equality is definitely a state of mind and it has to be on both sides. You know, you, you have to grow into the role. And it seemed very odd to me from the word go that being one sex or the other or anything else you choose would make other people's definitions of you more hampering than anything you could ever do to yourself. I mean, that just seems, it still seems really mm. bizarre, really bizarre. However, that is the world we live in. And it's certainly the world I grew up in. And particularly in, in the second book, Marion, who, who has uh, affairs in the 1970s, she lives in rural Kent. She was of that generation who were at the very fringes, the tiny, you know, really almost indiscernible fringe and, and wave of, 
of women's lib as it was then. Right. But knew there was something, you know, they were all having their tiny Betty Friedan moments. They knew there was something, but they were absolutely unable to access it. You know, they had in the modern parlance no agency, you know, probably dependent financially, certainly dependent societally, and defined all the time by an expectation to become less visible as time goes on, which again is, is fine, you know, but, but only if that's what you choose. And that, you know, that's probably a sidebar, but I do in, think that, you know, in, when, no, I was gonna, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, I no, I was going to say that, you know, invisibility for the older woman, I think is a superpower. And in fact, if you ask people what their superpower is, they most often say invisibility and you think you got it, you know, you've got the, it's not, being ignored that's different it's just the ability to not be immediately defined because people you know when you reach a certain age people don't really know who you are anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> not giving out all the usual signals and they can't tell who you were either so you can pay out a little bit at a time if you want but you are not required as you are when you're younger to be everything all at once because basically you're in competition you know so you have to you have to get out there and, and uh, do your thing all the time She's exhausting, and I do you know. I had a nice time, but I don't want to go back to it. But I'm, yes, I'm. I'm very conscious of the roles and rights of women, and I. And I'm always puzzled when anybody wants you to justify that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you mean you're not? <laughs> yeah, right. Especially the, in a world where it's still such an ever, such a all-present problem. Yes, mm. totally, totally, and and it's always you know this is probably a you know, another subject for another day, but it's definitely something that is still paid out. And it's sometimes paid out by women as well, which is equally odd. You know, there's that thing about, you know, if you if you go back, if you get to the top, send the lift back down. And I, you know, I do think that's really important. It's really yeah. important. But again, it's, it's it, I think most of us who feel like I do just want to be where this isn't the conversation anymore, you know, and it's still, we're still doing it. You know, I, I was marching and, and wearing badges in the 70s and thinking, well, this should be it then. <laughs> <laughs> That's that job done. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, because everything else you've said has been about um, how, how you think of people as, as individuals, as particular creations and so on. And I suppose yeah. even even trying to think of them in categories, even if you're forced in that way, thinking by other people's prejudices is, is somewhat uncomfortable to an individualist, isn't it? To yes, someone it who sees individuals, yes, individual people. Your, that is your strength after all. So to somebody say, hang on a minute, you're not as strong as that simply because, you know, you're not, you're not as strong as him simply because you know you're a girl and that's that's always been I don't know puzzling most of all not not even initially a source of anger but just a kind of wonderment that the world would be divided like that and that you know as as everybody would acknowledge that isn't to say that there aren't hugely enjoyable things about both sides of course Mm, there are and I think there are profound and enjoyable differences too but but the thing that binds us you know the thing that makes us equal the things that make us equal I can't separate out one to the other or all the other points. Everything you've said um, so far about human beings, and it seems to me that a lot of your most precious uh, beliefs are about human beings, you know, our connectedness to each other, how we are created, what sort of thing we are, you know, who we are. Everything you've said makes it clear that you think of um, the individual human being as, you know, a product in a way, something that's continuous continuously developing and so on and so forth um i just wonder um 
and I'm allowing my own personal curiosity to get in here because this is something that I often think about and I wonder what you think about it because mm-hmm. I'm very much in tune with everything else you've said and I wonder if you can help me with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, is the, do, do, don't you ever become aware of the tragedy of that as well? Like you think here, here is the human being, you know, year after year, um, generating uh, uh, this incredible personality, rich and layered and, uh, and developed just, just for it to come one day to an end. How do, you, how do you deal with that personally? I'm interested because I, like you, see the, the, the individual human being as a story, as a, um, yeah. a unique thing that you know, is never completed. But then it does just suddenly end. And sometimes I think, oh, even as a humanist, I find, well, I suppose I find it a bit tragic. Yes. Do you ever it, think yeah. That? In fact, one of my, my chief pleasures in life is going through graveyards. I absolutely love graveyards. In fact, I, I walk at the moment, especially because it's a particular route every single morning through quite a big graveyard at church in Jizik. And I, you know, I make a point of trying to read what, whatever grave is visible most to me then, because obviously a lot of it is sadly erased. Mm. And I know when I was younger, certainly when I was a child, I used to think, this is a terrible thing, but luckily I'll put it into my childish thing. I used to think, were all those people just okay with, with that being the end of it? you know, setting aside any religious thing, just their actual lives ended there with a stone that hardly records their name and you have to really scratch around to see their dates. And because at that point, you know, I was set on becoming an actress and probably in my mind, a very famous actress, you know, it was a burning ambition to act for a start. You know, nobody in my family was anything to do with that. So it just came from me, this real, you know, this absolute strong connection to my future self somewhere on the stage and I used to think you know I, but I'm that's is that because you know, I don't just want a faded off stone I want you know memorial. <laughs> but actually now I'm coming to this point where I think but that that is our contribution that is that is our legacy to be that entwined with people who make up this common bond and over the years, having met people who are back to invisibility again, who are ostensibly ordinary, whatever that means, and yet no one is. No one. No one is. Everybody's got either some tortuous part of their personality, but more often than not, some amazing or extraordinary or sad or remarkable fact that is theirs alone, you know, that is extraordinary and makes, makes who, you know, not who they are in, entirely, but certainly is a massive part. And if you... If you open that up, you know, both of you can go, good grief, I didn't know you did that, said that, thought that. So we have this this common link of all these individuals who are allowed to be that, who are allowed to be that individual, and some of whom we, we then elevate, you know, that we let them design our buildings or create our music or put things on our walls. And I think the only thing I got right as a child is the fact that not everyone wants to do that. <laughs> and, it, you know, that, that definitely did not connect with me then because I just right. assumed we were all jostling about trying to get, <laughs> not just on stage, but the front, the under the light. I see. And actually, I think we don't all want that. Or maybe we want it sometimes, but we don't want it all the time. And we are prepared I don't know, my, my analogy at the moment, I'm thinking weirdly, is we are prepared to be the trampoline, you know, we're prepared to support the bounce. Right. But, we, you know, we still need to be there. So, yes, I mean, it, 
more for more for people I have loved and lost who would profoundly have enjoyed things that happened since or mm. would equally have been incredibly useful in you know or useful that's terrible but you know would have been a real salve in things that have happened to me but it was mostly the the shared pleasure of their lives that I miss you know the shared their their world view but to go back to your point about you know the the end of stuff I think we are that trampoline our, our ending supports the next bounce you know and I I think I can only make sense of it like that because the idea of people I love dying is appalling and terrifying. My own is sort of, I don't know. Mm. Don't, don't want it to be, you know, it's a bit like Woody Allen. I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> but you see yourself as part of a chain of people going into the future as well as going into the past. That seems you've situated yourself even maybe in a, a story in that way. Yeah, maybe I do. I mean, I don't think I'd thought about it that consciously. And, and yet I have got children, but I certainly didn't produce them in the thought that they would represent my legacy. And it doesn't have to be, I don't think it has to be your family either. I think no, no, of course. Friends or your colleagues or, you know, some, you know, if you're a scientist, something you're working on that you may not get to the yes. end of, but you will definitely, it will end. You know, you may not be there at the time, but somebody will find it. That solution, that thought, that prophecy. But yeah, yeah, I don't, I suppose because I'm too much of an optimist to think that the end of it all is a really bad thing. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't sustain that really. That's probably quite cowardly, isn't it really? <laughs> I don't think so. I think you've given lots of reasons why we should uh, not see our individual lives as the end of anything um, so much if the story is carrying on. But you're, you're right though. There are, you know, there are things in us that we will probably never be able to express either for lack of means yeah. and that's awful because you know it could have been amazing and it should have been shared but I suppose it, it just and I'm profoundly lazy so none of this is kind of motivating to make me think you know I must make the most of my time because <laughs> I'm not really like that at all. What do you take from it then do you take anything practical perhaps this the last thing we might uh, discuss do you take anything practical from this these beliefs or this belief in particular um does it have consequences um this particular idea yes i suppose it does that it's not to say nothing matters because everything really really matters a lot but it's more a perspective that i suppose i've always wanted to whatever frightens me or puzzles me profoundly I want to get to the other side and have a look at it from there I want to see it from all angles I can't bear shapelessness and I've had to work really hard over this because you know when when the ending of this goes to a row of dots that really doesn't suit because I'm quite good at thinking about what's the worst that can happen you know I travel all that way along and have a look at it it's pretty grim but I think okay now I know what it looks like that's just one option it, it does reduce the possibilities to me, but also one option of dealing with it, you know, because the worst may well happen. But as I've said already, those bad things that happen, I did cope with, you know, and I would I would put out exactly the same feelers and use hopefully the same coping mechanisms. But it, yeah, I suppose it's it's not so much it's not a worldview. It's quite tiny. <laughs> it's a sort of step by step view, but knowing that. Even if the ground isn't solid, it's going, something about it will be familiar. Something about it will be known. Creativity, curiosity, connectedness, resilience. Janet Ellis, thank you for telling us what you believe.
Thank you so much. That was Janet Ellis telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a new weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was just our second episode of our first season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. And if you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can do it at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk, where you can also join as a member or supporter. Next week, I'll be talking to composer, comedian, actor, writer, producer, and director, yes, that's all one person, Tim Minchin, about what he believes. Mm-hmm.